one of the things that concerns me about Christmas. And though this week I've been accused of being in a Scrooge because I didn't want to do something. But one of the things is that when it comes to Christmas, we tend to focus on just simply one aspect of the story of Christ. Uh, obviously, we tend to focus on the babe in the manger, you know, uh, lowly Jesus, meek and mild. I was listening this morning as I was driving in to you know, one of the Christmas carols that we sing and talked about, you know, Jesus, not a sound he made. You know, he didn't cry. It's like, yeah, he did. Uh, he needed his diapers changed and all the things that are part of being a human being. And as I think about that, I want us, as we enter into the, as we come to the end of the Advent season, as we enter into Christmas week, to make sure that our minds are focused on the wholeness of the story. This little skit demonstrates, I think, some of the struggle that we find ourselves in as we try to think through the implications of the Advent season. I wonder what it would be like to be born in a manger. Yeah. Wonder what ever happened to baby Jesus. He, he grew up. What? Wait. So you're saying that the baby Jesus Christmas story is the same as the adult walk on water Jesus? Yeah. Thanks, honey. Wow, I just never really put the two concepts together. <laughs> Wonder what happened to that guy, huh? <laughs> he, he went to the cross. That's the same guy? Yeah. So what you're saying is baby Jesus is the same as cross Jesus? Yeah. I mean, there's some time in there, right? I mean, he, he grew up, he taught people, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and came back to life, and, you know, now he lives in our hearts. That's the same guy? The Jesus that lives in our hearts? Okay, I was really, oh, wow. Okay, I never really put all those guys together, you know? Only one guy. I tell you this. Here's an idea. Maybe we stop just making Christmas all just this once a year isolated thing, but we make it an ongoing story about the salvation in our hearts and lives. That's the idea. It's a wonderful spook. It's a wonderful skit. But yet we struggle with that. The immensity of the story around Christmas is huge. How do we keep it in mind? How do we stay focused on the totality of the story? Two weeks ago, we looked at the phrase, Son of God. And we were reminded of the question, where do babies come from? 
when you're answering and when you're asking that question about Jesus, the answer is that baby came from eternity past. He was God. He existed as God. He was God in relationship, father and son. Later, we understand also the spirit. Relating to one another in a relationship of love throughout all of eternity. That's part of what we keep in mind during the whole Christmas season. As we began this Advent season, there are three themes that I want to look at. Two weeks ago, it was Son of God. This week, we're going to look at Son of Man. And next week, in celebration, we'll look at Son of David. But this morning, I want to focus on that phrase. For you see, in that one phrase, the immensity of the Christmas story is to be found. Now, when we hear the phrase, Son of Man, we tend to think of Jesus in his humanity. And that is an aspect of that title. But it is so much more. And I want to suggest that as we go through this Christmas season, as we think through what it all means, that that phrase, Son of Man, would be a phrase that we keep in our thinking in order that we might comprehend more about what Advent and Christmas is all about. This will date me, but I remember when Bob Dole was running for president. Some of you weren't even born then. But Bob Dole had this terrible habit. When he was speaking about himself, now usually when you and I speak about ourselves, we use the phrase me or I. Bob Dole when he was talking about himself, would use his name. It would drive me crazy. Bob Dole was going to do this, and Bob Dole was going to do that, and Bob Dole, you're, you know, and I thought, that is really, really weird. What do you call yourself? When you're talking about yourself, what, what's the term you use most of all? Not what other people call you. What is so interesting when you study scripture? Do you know what Jesus called himself more than anything else in the entire Gospels? Jesus called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. It was significant to him. In fact, if you look at scripture, if you go through the Gospels, and the whole New Testament, you will find that 94 times the phrase Son of Man is used. Of those, 90 times, it's Jesus speaking of himself, or a reference, always a reference to Jesus. Only four times does somebody else call Jesus the Son of Man. Now, when we hear that phrase, 
We think in terms of humanity. But what I want us to do in order to understand what that phrase means, usually when you do a message, you begin the message with your, your, kind of your thesis statement, what, what you want to say, and then you build that up, and then you kind of come back and show how it related back. I don't want to do that. This morning what I would like to do is I'd like to do a little bit of biblical theology. And the idea behind biblical theology is understanding that when Scripture reveals truth, it builds upon itself. God reveals something about himself, lets mankind kind of struggle and work through that, and then God reveals more about himself and more about himself. You have the Old Testament, which really does focus on God's holiness. And much of the theme of the Old Testament is that man in his sinfulness has violated the very holiness of God. And the greatness of God's holiness cannot be satisfied by the efforts of man. And so for over a thousand years, that was part of the understanding of man as God waited for us to struggle through that and come to a comprehension. And then Galatians says at just the right time, Jesus came. We came to understand that, yes, God's holiness cannot be met by our efforts, but God will provide the need. And then he reveals himself throughout the New Testament. And so I want to take that sort of biblical theology and begin by working through this idea through four scenes where that idea of the Son of Man is used. And then after we've built that up, we've built, if you want, our biblical theology, then to take a look at the passage where the fullness of what it means is proclaimed by the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, you can turn along because we're going to look at a number of passages, but I'll have some of those verses up here for us also to look at. But when you are trying to understand the idea of the Son of Man, you need to begin where it is first used. The phrase Son of Man is used in its technical way. And when it is used, it introduces to us a person who though in human form, though he is the son of man, he he looks like a human being. Yet he exhibits some of the attributes of God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. If not, you can follow along. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has one of those weird visions that the book of Daniel is filled with. And in that particular vision, he sees four beasts coming up out of the the sea. One beast is like that of a lion. The next is like that of a bear. The next is like that of a leopard. And the last is this crunching, gross beast that's not clearly described, but is trampling and destroying things. And what is taking place is Daniel is seeing man's system 
the, the power and the authority grabbed by men. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that vision, there is one that comes, and the phrase is used, the ancient of days. God shows up. And in Daniel chapter 7, in the middle of those four beasts, and in verse 9, you read this. Daniel says, and as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the ancient of days, that's God, took his seat. Why? He's coming to judge. He's coming to make right that which was corrupted in the authority of man. And then it describes him. It describes him in his Shekinah glory, that glowing glory of God that man in his sinfulness cannot fully look upon, that will destroy us because of its greatness. And Daniel describes it this way. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and the wheels were ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And not, it's not the idea of do the math. You know, don't get your calculator out and go 10,000 times 10. The idea is innumerable creatures are praising this one. And the books are open. And accounting will be made. God judges the corruption of man. But as he's doing so, somebody shows up. And as you read on, you read this, these verses. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one, and here's the phrase, like a son of man. It's the first time it's used. Daniel says, I see the throne room of God. I see God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his power, in all of his authority. And suddenly, a man walks in. A man, and listen how he's described. He's one riding on the cloud. Approaching the Ancient of Days, was led into his his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion, his kingdom, is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And unlike the kingdoms of man, the fiefdoms of humanity, his kingdom will never be destroyed. As you're reading that passage, a couple of things stand out. First of all, it's in the midst of this world system and in the midst of God's judgment upon it. We come to understand that he's described as a human. He is a human being. But he's like God. 
Now, I noticed when I was reading that passage and I said that he came on the clouds, riding on the clouds, no one went, ooh. But you should have. We don't hear that with ancient ears. Well, some of us more ancient than others. But but not, you know, the, uh, 4th century B.C., 6th century B.C. ears. We don't hear it that way. Because when we heard it, if we were living at that time, and we heard of one riding on the clouds, we would have understand this one is God, because only God rides on the clouds. Only God has that kind of power and authority. So he's like God. He rides on the clouds. He's like God in that he enters fully into God's presence with no struggle, with no concern. We see that he's given all authority over all of creation, over everything. We're seeing that he is worshipped. Who is worshipped in the Old Testament? Only God. Only God. And when people would try to worship angels or those kinds of things in the Old Testament, the angels would panic. Don't do that. But God is the only one who is worshipped. And his kingdom is forever. Now, that's the first glimpse we have of the Son of Man. He is one that is a heavenly being. He is one that has the authority and character of God, and yet he's in a human form. And in the Old Testament, for the Old Testament scholar and for those that studied the book of Daniel, they couldn't quite comprehend what is going on here. All that they knew, all that they understand, that was somehow this was the Messiah. This was the one who was coming. This was the one who was promised by God. This is the one who somehow would come and make all things right. They struggled with Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, and asked the question, what does Son of Man mean? But one thing they understood was that the Son of Man was the Messiah, the one who would come and make all things right. But Scripture doesn't end there. There is more revelation about the Son of Man. The, the reason why Jesus loved this phrase to describe himself is every time you read that in, New, in the New Testament, and Jesus is saying he's the Son of Man. As he asked the disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man, the Son of Man. The whole idea is Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is the Messiah. I'm the one who is God's representative who is here to make all things right. But if you flip to the back of the book, you get another glimpse of this one who is called the Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, another of God's people, the Apostle John, is seeing what God is going to be doing in, in the future. And in the midst of that, 
He too has a revelation. He too sees this one, the Son of Man. But what is revealed is that this one who is the Son of Man is not simply human form and one of God's representatives. It is God himself in human form. God, the second person of the Godhead, God in Christ, takes upon himself flesh in order that he might accomplish the purposes of God. And so as John hears this voice and he turns around, and as he turns around, he is overwhelmed by who he sees. And he describes that one in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. And he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was was someone... And notice the description. Like a son of man. He was in human form. But so different. You understand that when Jesus lived in his earthly ministry and he walked among the disciples and he walked among humanity, his glory was hidden. You couldn't see the Shekinah glory of the second person of the Godhead. God allowed his humanity to hide that for a while. But suddenly John sees the Son of Man, the one Jesus, in all of his glory. He says, I saw the one the Son of Man, and notice his description. We'll look at this again a little bit. He says, he is dressed in robes, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. It is the, the, the garment of the high priest, but not like any Old Testament high priest. For he goes on to describe this high priest, and he says his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like glowing bronze in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of the rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And then, as John continues and didn't have enough space on the slide but in as he continues to see this one that one begins to speak to john and he says to john i am the alpha i am the omega i am the beginning and the end i am the one that was the first and the last the living one i'm sorry i am the living one i was dead and behold I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of of Hades and death in my hand. Suddenly we come to realize this son of man is God himself. And as you read through that, you're just struck with the fact that this one who is God himself is our high priest. God himself represents us before God. And hold on to that image because it's going to become important in a few moments. He's described just like Daniel described the ancient of days with all of this glory and all of this majesty coming through his robes and coming through his eyes and coming through all that he was. And you see the Shekinah glory of the ancient of days. 
And then finally, he's revealed as the one who is eternal. The word that existed in eternity past and now will exist into eternity future. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is God himself representing himself coming to make all things right. But there's another image of the Son of Man. And that's found in an interaction in Luke. After Jesus had fed the 5,000 and after a number of things had taken place, the high point, one of the high points of Luke's gospel is when Jesus comes to the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000 and he asks the question, who do men say that I am? And the response is, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And then Jesus turns and says to his disciples, who do all y'all the second person plural. The southerners can translate that in ways that northerners can't. Who do all y'all say the Son of Man is? Peter's response is this. You are the Christ, the Messiah. Now, all of that was expected. But suddenly, Jesus, to use a 60s phrase, a 60s phrase, blows their minds and tells them something that was never known in all of the Old Testament, that was never understood about the Messiah until Jesus came and taught it and demonstrated it. Jesus says this. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell that he was the Messiah to anyone. And then he said, that son of man, that one who is the Messiah, that one who is God's representative coming to make all things right, the one who is the son of man must it is necessary for him to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Remember the guy in the, in the little skit? shocked me. For in all of the Old Testament, it was so difficult to see that the one, God himself, who would come as his own representative to make all things right, must do so by dying and being raised to life. Now, in that phrase, 
The little word is he must. It is necessary. And it's a little Greek word, three letters. The, the word is day. And it speaks of that which is God's sovereign plan and purpose. This doesn't take God by surprise. This isn't, oh, you know, man just overcame God. Not at all. It was God's plan so that holy God and fallen man could again be in intimate relationship with one another. It is necessary. It is necessary that the Son of Man be rejected, scorned by those he came to save. It was necessary for the Son of Man to be killed, to die on the cross. Why? It is God himself in the second person of the Godhead in Christ making right what we messed up. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. He paid the death. And because it was the Son of Man, God himself, the extent of that payment is eternal. All who will believe forever. And to prove his power. To prove his victory. To prove that death had been conquered. It goes on to say that he will rise on the third day and proclaim death is destroyed. Sin is removed. Eternity. In God's presence is his gift to us, to those that respond. But there's one more image, and it's the one that is meant to move us, to drive us to intimacy with God. For if it's just God's holiness, man must flee. But in the presence of God's grace, we are drawn. So as you come to the fourth picture, we find that the Son of Man is the one who stands If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the passage that's found in Acts chapter 7, and the key verses are found there. But in Acts chapter 7, one of the deacons of the first church, Stephen, the church at Jerusalem, is brought before the crowd, and he begins to give testimony about who Jesus was and how the people had taken him and crucified him. And just like they had always rejected God, they were rejecting him again as they were rejecting this one Christ. And they had taken him and placed him on a cross and killed the one who was God's Messiah. The crowd became enraged. And as their anger was growing and violence was momentarily about to break out, the scripture says 
that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God, the Shekinah, all of that glowing bronze and and glowing robes and light coming forth. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And when we read that, we just run through it and go, okay. That's astounding. Stephen says, look. I see heaven open and the Son of Man, the Messiah, not sitting on his throne in judgment, not sitting there on the right hand of God, bringing out condemnation upon a fallen world. I see Jesus, listen, standing. And we go, so what? But that's astounding. Think about a courtroom. That's what this is. It's the courtroom of God. It's Jesus on the throne of judgment. And when you look at a throne room, when you look at a courtroom particularly, it is only the defendant that stands in the docket. It is only the guilty one, the one being judged that stands The jury is seated. The judge is seated. The prosecution is seated. The defendant is standing. And the judge is sitting in judgment. But not here. For here, the judge rises and stands with the defendant. The image is God saying, I am no longer your judge. I am now your advocate. The one who is for you, not against you. The one who is not here to judge, but to be with. And suddenly, The judge demonstrates in standing in the courtroom that I stand with this one. And the God of the universe, the Son of Man, the Lord himself, God's representative, who comes to make all things right, is our advocate. When you put it all together, you end up understanding the phrase Son of Man this way. The Son of Man is God eternal, who came as a man to suffer as our advocate. The first aspect of Advent, he came. As a promise to the Old Testament, as a fulfillment in the New. But he comes with understanding in the midst of our struggles. 
It was necessary for the Son of Man, the one who was God himself, to take on human form and to live and die and be resurrected. With an understanding of what it means to struggle in this life. Do you ever struggle in this life? Go like this. The image of the Son of Man is God there with you. I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago. Someone came and said, Keith, I have a question. How can God love us with all the things that are happening in the world? A particular person just had a new child in their family and was just struggling with all the things we were seeing, the, the attacks in Paris and the and the attack here in our country in California and, and all that was going on. And as we were talking, my response to him was this. God never promises us that in this fallen world we won't face struggles and difficulties. We will. A fallen world will fall on us. But the love of God in this world is seen not in the avoidance of any kind of difficulty. God never promised that. In fact, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, struggle. But as we taught, I said, you know where you see the love of God? First, you see it here. Where God said, I love you enough that the second person of the Godhead will come as our advocate to die for us to make everything right. The love of God is not seen in the particulars of my life in the midst of a fallen world. It's seen, first of all, on the cross. I said, secondly, we see God's love because he is with us in the midst of that struggle. Talk to anyone who is a believer whose strength is growing in the midst of a difficulty, and they will tell you this, I could not have made it without the knowledge that God was with me. Strengthening me. Empowering me. Comforting me. Encouraging me. child was in the hospital this week and had to have some IVs and as I was there and we were talking, I, I remember a time when Brennan had gotten into a cabinet that I had and thought it was locked, and he got in and he drank some poison out of that cabinet. When we ran him to the emergency room, they would end up having to put an IV into him. They had to stick him five times till they finally got it started. And I remember laying across the body of my son, holding him down, and nearly in tears. And the only thing that I could say to him was, Daddy's here. It'll be okay. Daddy's here. It'll be okay. The IV was necessary to save his life. And what I could offer in the midst of that 
because I'm with you, child. God says, I come. In the midst of our struggles, with an understanding of what it means to be in the midst of that pain. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer physically. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer suffer relationally. Jesus knew what it was like to suffer, um, suffer emotionally. And he comes and understands. But as I was talking to that young man, I said, there's a third way that God demonstrates his love. And that is the day will come when all will be made right. For you see, the Son of Man is God eternal, who came to suffer as our advocate, who comes in the midst of our struggles, and who will come to grant us the enjoyment of his eternal kingdom. This Advent season, every time you see a manger, I want you to think of this phrase, that's the Son of Man. And remember that truth. Now with that image in mind, let me turn to the passage that I'm really going to preach on, but I'm just going to read it. Relax. And that's Hebrews chapter 2. Where the writer of Hebrews tells us about the Son of Man. Not in image, but in declaration. The writer of Hebrews says this, It is not angels. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. About which we are speaking. But there is a place in Scripture, he's saying, where someone has testified, what is a man that you are mindful of him? And here's the phrase, the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. The writer of Hebrews begins by talking about humanity in general, and then all of a sudden he shifts, and he begins talking about the Son of Man, Jesus. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see whom? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, by the way who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then listen. Since the children, us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. In other words, all who are God's children. We are Abraham's descendants, whether we are Jewish or not, through our faith in Jesus Christ. We are made and identified as his descendants. For this reason, He had to be made like his brethren in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are now being tempted. That's the Son of Man. The one who was God himself, who came as God's representative, in order that he might die for us, understanding us in the midst of our struggle, and promising us that a day is coming when all will be made right. That's Advent. He came, he comes, and he's coming again. And during this season, yes, celebrate baby Jesus meek and mild, but please don't stop. And understand that that one is truly the Son of Man. Father, thank you for the incredible message that we find in three simple words. May we as your people, during these weeks, during a time of focus and celebration, but Father, might we live in all the days that you give to us to live out the fact that the Son of Man, God himself, came as your representative to make all things right through his death. Father, thank you for the relationship that we share, the intimacy that is ours, and the hope of eternity that is before us. Thank you that comes because of our relationship, our faith, and our trust in what your Son, the Son of Man, brought about. Father, each Sunday morning, we invite anyone here who is not certain of that relationship, not certain of the intimacy with you, that they would come and speak to somebody about how they might know you. Father, thank you that during this season, we can be reminded of the awesome fact of the coming of the Son of Man, who came, who comes, and who will come again. 